everything we've talked about and cover what remaining points I think need to be covered. So bear with me, and if you have questions, please jot them down, and I'll take them at the end of this session. First of all, a point of clarification. I do, know, do not want you to think that I said that Roman Catholic prayers for the dead are inefficacious. I didn't say that. I think all prayers for the dead are efficacious. But I am saying that the reason Orthodox pray for the dead and the reason Roman Catholics, according to their official theology, pray for the dead, they have different systems of thought for explaining it. That's my point. And I just want to make the point that the Orthodox understanding is less juridical and more based on this, granted, more nebulous, but definitely uh, more mystical explanation of why prayer for the dead is required much less juridical and mechanical explanation. But far be it for me to say all the Roman Catholics prayers for the dead are non-efficacious, I don't believe that, all right? But I do think, I sort of like the Orthodox explanation better. That's, that's what I am saying. All right, I want to conclude by making a number of observations around the topic defeating death, the unfolding victory. The turning point in history for us Christians was the resurrection of Christ. And there is probably no service that is celebrated in the Orthodox uh, liturgical life that is more powerful to me than the lamentation service on Good Friday and the resurrection service on Holy Saturday evening. And I want us to reflect for a moment on those services because they indicate what exactly happened when Christ rose from the dead. It ties together a lot of what we've talked about already. Think about what we do on Good Friday as we gather at the tomb to lament Christ. We sing the Lamentations, and at the end of the service, what do we do? We pick up the Epitaphios, and we carry the Epitaphios around the church, all right, and then bring the Epitaphios, the representation of Christ in the tomb, back into the church. And in the Antiochian and Greek traditions, we place the epitaphion upon the altar at that point, the holy table. What this represents now is that Christ has made his journey down to the underworld, down to Sheol. All right? And in fact, if you go in a lot of Orthodox churches, what you see depicted on the front of the altars is Christ entombed. All right? So the altar is seen as a symbolic representation of Christ's entombment. When we bring that epitaphios back into the church and place it on the holy table, what we're saying is the church represents Sheol, and Christ is there present. The next evening, the next night at midnight when we do the resurrection service, look at what happens in that resurrection service. The priest comes out with a light out of the midst of darkness. The darkness symbolizing death, the light symbolizing the dawning light of the resurrection. We all come and take that light, proceed outside the church, and encircle the church three times. Whenever you encircle a territory, that means you're claiming it for your own. Even your dogs do that. Have you ever noticed? <laughs> Before they sit down, they encircle it. And then they say, like, this is marking the territory is mine, and then they plop themselves down. To use a more biblical example, which probably will have less of an impact, when Israel conquered Jericho, they encircled the city before they took the city. What the church is doing in taking this light of the resurrection three times around the church, then they come to the front door of the church, 
And after the litany and the reading of the gospel of the resurrection, the priest takes the cross in hand and he knocks on the door three times and he says, Lift up ye heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ye everlasting portals, that the King of glory may enter in. Then usually someone with a very big voice on the inside says, Who is this King of glory? Once when I was in the parish, someone just said, Who is it? <laughs> it sort of broke the moment. But I, luckily only I heard it, I think, so I just... Lift up ye heads, O ye gates, and be lifted up, O ye everlasting portals, that the King of glory may enter in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, the Lord mighty in battle. And the third time, lift up ye heads, O ye gates, as he's knocking on the door at the cross, and be lifted up, O ye eternal portals, that the King of glory may enter in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. At that point, the doors are thrown open. Remember, the church represents Sheol. The doors are thrown open. All the lights are lit. All the chandeliers are swung. The, why are the chandeliers swung? To show that Hades is being conquered. Sheol is being overturned. And death has been overthrown. This is, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it. Yes. And... If you look at a very ancient Christian text, an apocryphal text called the Gospel of Nicodemus, this very scene is depicted in it. You can, I have the text here if you ever want to look at it. The reason why Christ was born, in a way, was to die. He was born as true God and true man, so that as true man he could enter into the domain of death and shatter it as God. All of those beautiful texts about Hades groaning, saying, I thought I was taking the body of a man, and lo, I found out I have taken in God. And lo, he is freeing all of my captives and liberating them. This central truth of the Christian faith that is so beautifully, and I just don't want to say represented, but represented to us in the liturgy. You are there for that conquest of Sheol, that liberation of the dead in Sheol, is the beginning of a process. All too often, we look at the resurrection of Christ as sort of a validation of who Christ was. Boy, he showed everyone who didn't believe in him, didn't he? He rose from the dead. He showed everyone who didn't believe in his preaching. He rose from the dead and he showed them. But that is not the purpose of the resurrection in its totality as we Orthodox understand it. The totality of the purpose of the resurrection is understood in a phrase used by St. Paul in his first letter to the Corinthians, where he says that Christ is the first fruits from among the dead. First fruits means there's a big harvest coming and Christ is only the first one of that harvest, the first fruits. The harvest that is coming is the resurrection of all of us. If you have Bibles with you, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I want to look at some verses there. First Corinthians 15, let's start with verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Okay, the first of a whole harvest to follow. For since by man came death, 
by man also came the resurrection of the dead. Christ, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Remember we saw that, how the orthodox understanding of death was because of Adam's disobedience, death entered the scene because sin had been introduced into the world as a wedge between the human race and God. Just as in Adam, sin was introduced and all became subject to death, in Christ all are made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ first, Christ the firstfruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. And then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. And now look what the next verse says. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Death. The topic that we've been looking at for this whole conference. The last enemy to be conquered is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. This is a description of Christ's glorious return at the last coming, at the, at the last judgment, at the second coming. This is a description of what will happen on the last day. And Christ is only the first fruits of that by virtue of his resurrection. Look what will happen to the rest of us. Verse 29. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? It seems that in some communities they have the rather bizarre practice of being baptized for those who were dead and had not been baptized before. It's not that Paul is validating that practice. He's saying some of you are doing that, and what are you doing it for if you don't believe that they're going to rise again from the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. Remember we saw this verse, unless a grain falls into the ground and dies, it does not bring forth life. But those who die and are buried are expected to bring forth this new life. And what you sow, you do not sow that the body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. And here's the important point. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. 
It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven, and was the man of dust, so also, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now I say this, brethren, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying which is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So what is Paul saying here? He is saying that on the last day, what is sown in the ground is corruptible. This material body will be raised, transformed. Our body will be raised and perfected. How that transformation will occur, we don't exactly know. But the body that we bury will be raised, perfected. Again, what is our indication of that? The indication is exactly what happened to Christ himself at his resurrection because he's the first fruits of this harvest that will in time include us. Remember the story in the Gospel of John, John chapter 20. All of the disciples were in the upper room behind closed doors. And suddenly what happened? Christ appeared in the midst of them. This is the story of Thomas. Thomas had said, I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger in the print of the nails, put my hand in his side. They're there in the upper room behind closed doors, and suddenly Jesus appears in the midst of them. You try that. And yet, it wasn't just a ghost, because he calls Thomas over, and he says to Thomas, here, come here, put your finger in the print of my nails, put your hand in my side. Don't be unbelieving, but believing. It was a real body. And yet that body had just passed through a closed door. Christ's body, after his resurrection, was a real body, but it was somehow a transformed body. I think this is also indicated to some extent in the story of Jesus walking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, they walk all that way with him, and yet they didn't recognize him. And how was he revealed to them? In the breaking of the bread. Somehow, the resurrected body will be different from our present body. It will not be weighed down by all of the effects of sin afoot in the world, not only our own personal sins, but the repercussions that sin afoot in the world has had on all living beings. As I told you yesterday, I'm going to have a full head of hair, and it will be glorious. 
all right? We're going to have a perfection, a spiritualization of our body. That is what happened to Christ's body at his resurrection. Christ is the first fruits of this harvest of which we will be a part. So, we anticipate the last day when the fulfillment of God's plan for overcoming death is revealed. Our soul, which has been preserved in grace by God, will be reunited with our body at the resurrection of the dead, and we will stand before the awesome judgment seat of Christ when Christ will conquer all of his enemies, the last enemy to be conquered being death. It all fits together, doesn't it? And then the kingdom is handed over to the Father. You might say, oh, very interesting, Father, but we still die, don't we? I had a discussion with a parishioner from one of the Greek Orthodox parishes in West Virginia. Um, he is a Palestinian gentleman who is Christian, and he has fallen in love with a Muslim woman from North Africa. And the priest there says, I don't know how to answer these questions from a Muslim believer, so will you talk to her? The first question she asked me, she says, my fiancé is always telling me how Christ overcame death. But why do people still die? I said, the victory over death was begun in Christ. The first fruits of the harvest have been gathered. But only in time will that final victory be manifest to all the world. What your fiancé believes in is not a deal that is manifested to the whole world already, but one that has begun and that which we believers know will be brought to conclusion, to its fulfillment, to a culmination. This will be revealed, but we are beginning to experience it even now, even though its full revelation is not complete. The experience of life in the kingdom, the, the experience of life that will be fully revealed on the last day, is not just pie in the sky when you die. It's not just something that will be revealed only in the future. Already, we're beginning to experience this. My hero, uh, Metropolitan Ierotheos Vlachos, says in his book, he has a great quote in the introduction, a beautiful quote, where he says, yet there are other people who restrict eschatology to the future without being aware that the last things are experienced in this present life. He's saying for us Christians, yet, yes, it's true, we await the full manifestation of Christ's victory over death. But even now, we have, to use the fancy terminology of theologians, a proleptic experience, an anticipatory experience of the last things. The heart of the matter is that we Orthodox Christians are heirs to a victory when death will finally be put to death and life reign supreme. When everything that was made wrong by the alienation of the human race from God by virtue of sin will be healed. When human beings will again be in proper relationship with God and death will be no longer. And the proper integration of the human being, body and soul, a psychophysical unity reflecting the image of God will be revealed for all the world to see. But that's just not something in the future. That's something happening now with us. Someone asked me the other night, you know, Father, I'm very interested in this, but you know, why should we do missionary work if we believe that everyone will see this at some point? If they only they believe in Christ and his resurrection and throw themselves on Christ's grace, why is it that they should become orthodox? 
Why should we do missionary work? And I told her, it's a very good question. And you know what? It was anticipated even by St. Paul. The reason why orthodoxy, in my opinion, is the way to experience this kingdom, which is already and yet to come, which is already here, but yet to come, is because in the Orthodox Church, the power of the Holy Spirit manifests that kingdom in our worship, in our sacraments, in our standing before the throne of God at the liturgy. In Romans chapter 6, verse 3, Paul talks about baptism. The heart of the whole matter is baptism. Why should one become a Christian? Because it's in baptism that one becomes an heir of this promise. Romans 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe we also shall live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. And those of us who have mystically identified with Christ in baptism, who have died with him, also will share in his resurrection with him. This isn't just pale symbolism, according to St. Paul. This is entering into a reality. If the resurrection changed world history, the whole experience of the human race, it is our first responsibility to become part of that victory over death. This we do by baptism. But that's not the end of it. In the church we are experiencing, the kingdom is already here, but not yet here. Here and yet to come. The church is the body of the risen Christ. And we are united one to another, and even to our beloved dead, because Christ has overcome sin and death. We participate in eternity by virtue of our orthodox faith. In the liturgy, it states so clearly, what do we say? Not blessed will be the kingdom to come, but blessed is the kingdom. All of the Treparian are in the present. All the Treparian are in the present tense. Today cometh to the cave. Today uh, is revealed. Today salvation has come to the world. We live in the eternal present of the kingdom when we worship as Orthodox Christians in our liturgy. And of course, the apex of our participation in the death and resurrection of Christ is the Eucharist. What happens in our baptism is renewed every time we participate in the Eucharist. Entering into the covenant with God through our mystical identification with Christ becomes a reality every time we participate in the Eucharist and receive the body and blood of Christ. And in the Orthodox understanding of the Eucharist, the Eucharist is not a funeral for sweet Jesus, where you're receiving the body and blood of the dead Christ, the crucified Christ. You are receiving the body and blood of the risen Christ. The victory of death is already ours by virtue of this participation. And the other mysteries of the church, the same thing apply to. What is the sacrament of confession but a reclamation of our baptismal purity? So that the fathers who called confession a second baptism meant 
that that great identification with Christ and his death and his resurrection that we had in baptism, we reclaim through repentance in confession. Holy unction, when death threatens us through illness, we receive this mystery as a way of fending off the power of death by how? Also having forgiveness of sin. If you read James 5, it's clear that sin and illness are intertwined. Is anyone among you sick? Call in the presbyters of the church. Having him praying for him, having them pray for him. And the prayer of faith will save the sick man, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he be in sins, what? They shall be forgiven him. The healing of the body and the forgiveness of sins breaks that cycle of sin and death that we saw that the human race was subjected to as a result of the ancestral curse brought upon us by the sin of Adam. And even those of you who are married, even though it might not always seem this way, are participating in the glories of the kingdom because the marriage of Christ and his bride, the church, is reflected in the marital union as we understand it in the Orthodox Church. The kingdom is not just yet to come. The kingdom is here. And the reason why we look forward to the coming of the kingdom is because we have a foretaste of it even now. The eschatological realities are also present realities. And for that reason, we Orthodox are people longing for the kingdom yet to come. And yet do we really? How many of us woke up this morning thinking today might be the day? How many of us ended our prayers this morning by saying, Maranatha, O Lord, come. We've lost that sense of eschatological longing, even though the reality of the kingdom is here and now in our Orthodox worship and points us squarely toward the fulfillment of all things when Christ returns in glory and when death is finally overcome. The Orthodox faith is a participation in the kingdom of God now. And yet, what we have to do is always keep in mind that that coming kingdom is yet to be fully revealed. And let me end up by just saying this. If we die before the Lord returns, we have to prepare ourselves for death. And that's what life in the church is all about. The third kneeling prayer at Pentecost, you know those very, very long prayers that we do at Pentecost? There's always one line in that prayer that has struck me. It's from the third prayer, and it says, Therefore, O Lord, there is no death unto thy servants when we go forth from the body and come unto thee, our God, but a change from things most sorrowful unto things most beneficent and most sweet and rest and joy. The idea is that a good Christian death is not this tormenting trauma of the soul being rent from the body, but a peaceful transition of the souls departing from the body, entering into the intermediate state in preparation for the coming of the last day. And how do we prepare for that kind of death? I'll tell you. You want to be calm and secure and joyful in the presence of the Lord in the intermediate state? Be calm and joyful and secure in the presence of the Lord now. The way we are putting ourselves in God's presence, clearing our conscience of sin, integrating soul and body through ascetical discipline, that kind of training that purges the soul and the body of passions and allows the soul and the body to exist in that kind of harmony that God created us for, that kind of experience is the best kind of preparation 
for a peaceful transition from that time when soul is separated from the body. This is what the Christian life is about. If we detach ourselves now from the delusions and enticements of the world, if we transform our body and soul now through immersing ourselves in the divine energies through theosis, we are better prepared for that transition when the soul is separated from the body and in clear noetic awareness is in the presence of God. That's why spiritual life now is a preparation for death when it comes. And the further along we are in this process of theosis, of putting ourselves into the presence of the divine energies and being transformed by them, the easier that transition will be. We live in the kingdom now to some extent, and the greater our participation in the kingdom now, the easier our transition from this life when death comes. The age to come will be a time when our bodies will be resurrected and perfected and our soul will be reunited to that body. We will spend eternity in a body, body and soul together, a perfected body to be sure, but a body nonetheless. And all of the cosmos will be freed from its slavery to sin, and we, like the cosmos, will be restored to that state that God intended for us and for all the cosmos. Christianity's central message is this, that life and death are real. Death no less than life. Death and resurrection are not fantasies, but realities. But death is not destruction. It is transformation for the believer who has placed himself under the protection and in the grace of Christ. Christian is not condemnation, but the entering into the fulfillment of God's plan. So what we have to do is really renew our commitment to living the Christian life with this attitude, that the kingdom is in the church now, that we can participate in it by anticipation, in anticipation of the day when we are going to be separated soul from body at death, and in eager anticipation of the last day when Christ returns in glory. It really all fits together this way. If I could summarize what I've done in these talks in 10 short points, let me do that now as we end up. These 10 points are this. You're not going to try to write these down, are you? Sure. Oh, geez. Well, they're not that short, so I don't know. <laughs> the first is sound orthodox understanding of the last things of death and afterlife has to be consistent with orthodox anthropology. Okay? The teaching of the orthodox teaching of the human being. That's the first principle. Number two, death as a dissolution of the natural bond of soul and body is unnatural and is opposed to God's intention for human existence. The third point, the soul at separation from the body enters a spiritual dimension that doesn't have spatial coordinates. Fourth, in this new spiritual reality, awareness does not cease, but it's a new kind of awareness, an awareness of the highest faculty of the soul, noetic awareness, awareness of the noose. 
Fifth point. In describing the state and experience of the soul after the separation of the soul from the body at death, highly symbolic language is used. And for us to really understand this highly symbolic language, we have to avoid literalism. Sixth, and underline this one if you're noting these down, Gnosticism is not orthodox and cannot pollute our understanding of eschatology. Seven, judgment centers on the conscience. The soul's noetic perception of God makes the conscience of every person assess itself. The soul is vexed by its sins and comforted by its virtues, and sometimes these are symbolized as demons and of angels. Eighth, in facing death, God is on our side. We should not think of God as a vengeful judge, but as someone who wants us to appropriate the grace freely given. We should not fear the stings of the demons or the hindrances of the so-called toll houses if we have repented of our sins and placed ourselves under the protection of God's grace. Ninth, it is God's love that is infinite, not his anger. And that love will be revealed fully on the last day when at the resurrection, souls preserved in grace will be reunited with transformed bodies and stand before the revelation of God in Christ as love unmitigated. The person, body and soul together, will thus be judged. And finally, before the last day, the souls in the intermediate state have a foretaste of eternal fate, and they enjoy a spiritual increase as a result of our prayers and our commemorations. These 10 points summarize what we've covered in these four sessions. It is an integrated whole, orthodox theology is, and to understand orthodox eschatology, all of the other things we've discussed had to be discussed as well. And if you think about how they all fit together, you see the beauty and the simplicity and yet the profound truth of God's plan of salvation. There are many other topics that we can discuss uh, in line with this topic, and I'm gonna conclude by just mentioning two or three of them, and the rest can come up in questions. Always people ask me, what about cremation, Father? What about cremation? First of all, we Orthodox do not practice cremation, so don't plan on it, all right? Why, is it a dogma of the faith? No. To be honest with you, there are Orthodox in the world that practice cremation, for instance, in Japan, where they don't have places to bury people. Don't think that if cremation is done, for instance, by the Japanese Orthodox, God will still not raise that person on the last day. Indeed, he will. All right, we're all gonna end up as dust anyway. If someone, God forbid, is killed in an airplane accident where the body is burned, still that body will be raised. We don't do that. We don't resist cremation to help God out. We do it to make an important point. And that point is a point to be made to the world. We Orthodox, think that the body is holy and important even after the soul has departed from it because God isn't done with that body yet. 
And we don't ever want the world to think that we're Gnostics who think that only the state of the soul is important after death. Who cares how you dispose of the body? We reverently bury the body because we expect that as we bury that grain, new life will come forth. Second, other point, the second point that comes up all the time, reincarnation. Why don't we Orthodox believe in reincarnation? A lot of reasons, but I'll give you the one that I think is the most important. Orthodox Christianity affirms the uniqueness of every individual person ever created. And that person consists of one body and one soul that will be linked for all eternity. If you say that there is transmigration of souls and that a soul will in time inhabit many bodies, what does that do to the uniqueness of every individual person? It means only the soul is important and the body that houses it is not. This is not Orthodox Christian teaching. We believe in the holy uniqueness of every individual and that's you, body and soul together, not just your soul that happens to be harbored at this point in this body that you're in. What about the growing popularity of Eastern religions with regard to talking about death and afterlife? I'll tell you why I think they're popular. Because Eastern religions tend to downplay individual accountability before God, talking about cosmic realities that are unfolding, but somehow releasing the individual conscience from accountability before God on an individual basis. This is something that orthodoxy insists on as well. Today, I went to Eklutna, is that the village? And I saw the spirit houses, and I was filled with respect for those missionaries who worked among the natives, who did not come in there with a cultural bludgeon and say that your practices are demonic, get rid of them. Those spirit houses were interpreted in an orthodox manner. They used those houses to show that the spirit indeed lingers at certain times in certain places, and that the body and the spirit are forever interconnected. The spirit and the body that's buried underneath them in eternity will be connected on the last day. And you know, these missionaries with this, God bless these, these Russian missionaries who came. They respected the culture and they used it to proclaim this truth of orthodoxy. But I want to tell you one thing they put their foot down on. You know, I found out today, this parishioner of yours who gave the talk, what was her name? Danielle Shaw. Danielle Shaw. She did a great job. And if any of her family are here, tell her I was very impressed by her poise. She did a great job. And she made the point that the missionaries did draw the line on one thing. You know what it was? No, they drew the line on cremation. The natives used to practice cremation before Christianity came. When Christianity came, they said no to cremation, and they said yes to the spirit houses to show how the spirit and the body are, are linked in the Christian understanding of the afterlife. That's what true evangelization is about. Okay? Someone asked me two questions in the course of these uh, discussions that I thought were very interesting. Father, if you're talking about God's grace and love for us, that God is on our side, why do we always say, Lord, have mercy? Why are we constantly praying that? In fact, I have an Ethiopian family in my parish, and the little kids, when they see me, they don't know my name. They call me Lord, have mercy. <laughs> they think that's who I am. That's what they associate with me. And my point that I made to this person is, the church is intercessor for the world. Yeah, we pray that God may have mercy on us. 
That doesn't mean we're, we're unconfident of God's grace. But every time we say, Lord, have mercy, there is an outpouring of God's benevolence upon the whole of creation, upon the entire universe. And we pray that that mercy, we're not just praying that God have mercy on us. That's why a bad translation, notice that the church doesn't pray, Lord, have mercy on us. It prays, Lord, have mercy, that there be this outpouring of divine mercy on the entire world continuously, that we may come to this fulfillment that God intends us to come to in the true understanding of Orthodox eschatology. And then finally, someone asked this question, which I love. What about Plato, Father? He was a pretty good guy. And there he was before the coming of Christ. Doesn't it seem odd that he would not be eligible for salvation? He never heard the gospel. Well, I beg to differ. If you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 19, what was Christ doing between his death and his glorious resurrection? He was in Sheol, and as it says in verse 19, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Christ wasn't just lying around. I mean, his body was, of course, in the tomb, but his spirit was in. What does it mean in prison? What's it referring to, those spirits in prison? Where? In Sheol. And that's where Plato was with all the other dead, and he did hear the gospel preached. I don't know how he responded, but he did hear the gospel preached. Okay? So, all of us, when we look at Orthodox eschatology, and let me end on this note, should not understand Orthodox eschatology in magical terms or in ghoulish terms, sort of the kind of terms that you have when you watch a horror movie on the sci-fi channel, but on the basis of the basic truths of Christianity, that God created human beings, body and soul, as a unity to reflect his glory, and the death got in the way of that. And that what God did in saving us, soteriology, remember we talked about that? He entered into the creation to shatter death from within. So once the bonds of death were shattered, we could again claim that glorious reflection of God in our image. This is not yet fully revealed, but the process began when Christ shattered death and rose from the dead himself. He is the first fruits of a harvest of which we will all be a part. Don't fear death. Prepare for it. Make sure the transition is a transition that's smooth and to repose in the Lord because now, even now, you are reposing in your Lord by your relationship with him. Don't come to death with fear. Come to death with confidence. But don't come to death cavalierly either. Prepare for it because it is a transition of primary importance. And on the last day, when all of us stand before the dread judgment seat of Christ, I hope that all of us can stand with faces unashamed. That's my prayer. And the purpose of teaching on all of these things is so that we might prepare ourselves for that time when God will be all in all, and we will be so delighted with that that the only way we can describe our state of relationship with God is we are in heaven. We are in heaven. That's the purpose of this teaching. So I want to thank you all. You've been extremely attentive to these four sessions. And I want you to understand, too, how orthodox theology is a whole. Anthropology, soteriology, eschatology, all come together 
to form what is probably the most convincing interpretation of human existence that I think has ever been presented to the world. Take these things to heart. Think about them. Perfect love casts out fear. And let me end with a joke that I think many of you have heard. If you've heard Bishop Kalistos. This is great because it, it ends on this verse about perfect love casts out fear. How many of you know this joke? Oh, not many of you. Okay, good. I thought you all would know it. Bishop Kalistos tells a story. He says, you know, in the days of British domination in India, of course, many Brits lived in India, and they had many friends back home in England. And you know, in the biblically literate period of the, t the culture of the day, it would be very common, for instance, to send a card to someone and put the address on the card and just put a scripture verse to get your message across. Well, this person had a friend back in England was about to get married. And so he sent a postcard to the person with 1 John 4.18. A telegram, well, let me do it with a postcard here because it works with a telegram, but it's even more graphic here. Sends this telegram or postcard to the person and it reads on 1 John 4.18, good verse for someone getting married. 1 John 4.18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear. That's a good verse to send for someone getting married, isn't it? The only problem is that given the sometimes destructive effect of the mail, as the telegram or the postcard was being sent, it was ripped a little. And it was ripped right here. So that when the postcard got to the person who was being married in England, they got the postcard, and on the, at the time of their marriage, they get this postcard from their son that said, John 4, 18, which reads, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you spoke truly. <laughs> so be very careful you use durable telegram paper or postcards. Questions? Do we, how much time do we have for questions now? 12 minutes, okay, questions, yes. Thank you for addressing cremation because that was something I was thinking of. And kind of on that same note, what about um, if, if someone dies and they, they are an organ donor? Um, um, that's a good question and someone brought this up uh, in one of the other talks and I want to address it again. There is nothing wrong with being an organ donor. As I told you, that when someone else asked this question, I am an organ donor, and I told them whatever still works when I go, they can take. All right, now, the purpose of giving your organs for that someone else might live is an act of self-giving, and this is an admirable thing. Uh, just as long as you don't get involved in what might become a trafficking in organs that happens in our culture, I don't know how this is going to develop in time, you know, where people are you know, cavalierly harvesting organs for all kinds of bizarre experiments or something. That's something we shouldn't be a part of. But transfer transplantation and the way organs are used now, I see nothing wrong with Orthodox Christians being organ donors. Um, I don't even see, and this is my personal opinion, see anything wrong with um, Orthodox Christians donating their bodies for research if, 
the remains are disposed of re in a reverent way, okay, are buried and uh, disposed of in a reverent way, okay? Remember, our purpose is not to say, if we give an organ, my goodness, if I give my liver away, that means when I'm resurrected to the dead, God won't be able to do it because I, I'm missing a liver. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's not the purpose. The purpose is to give the message to the world that we do respect the body, all right? And the body is not something alien to the process of salvation, but part and parcel of it, okay? Other questions, uh, the mic right next to you. <laughs> If Christ himself is perfect on earth and had no sin, how then was he transformed after the resurrection so that the disciples didn't recognize him when I guess I think our transformation is that we're without sin? Mm -hmm. So how Okay, is first, it two points to make. Christ was without sin and death had no control over him. He entered into death voluntarily, okay? It says, you know, all the texts say, when thou didst go to thy voluntary passion, O Christ our God, when he suffered voluntarily. Um, but what he wanted to show us by his, uh, you know, his body was just like ours in all things but sin. He took on a body like ours voluntarily, not because he was subject to sin. All right? So that's the first thing. What Christ suffered in the body uh, was a voluntary thing, not the result of sin. At his resurrection, however, the body as is meant to be, you know, in the state of a spiritualized body was fully revealed. Why? Because he had conquered death's hold over that body that he voluntarily embraced in becoming like us in all things. Okay? In other words, the whole purpose of Christianity is to conform ourselves to Christ. And what Christ did in the economy of salvation was to show us what will happen to us. So he voluntarily... Uh, you know, embraced human life just like ours, except it was not tainted by sin. His body was like ours, however. And then he showed in his resurrection the way our bodies will become. Okay? But sometimes people ask, well, you talk about sin and death. Why did Christ die if he never sinned? Because he died voluntarily. That's why. Uh, question over here. What is the Orthodox position on um, praying for dead uh, children who for, who, for example, died in the womb uh -huh. um, and so did not, were not actually born and therefore were not baptized? Right. Um, can I pray for a child like that? Um, you know, is there some sort of a calendar cutoff point of when that when it is a child that whole all, that whole discussion of when is the soul right part of the body and well we believe that the soul yeah. is present in the body from the moment of conception okay that's the orthodox position that's why orthodox are anti-abortion and pro-life that is just simple i mean there is no budging on this one what happens though if someone dies in utero or even you know um as a very young child remember what i said you know, what really would keep that soul from being taken into the bosom of God fully except prickles of conscience, those stings of conscience? This poor child has never developed that ability to have sting of conscience or prickles of conscience because they have never voluntarily been subject to the forces of sin. 
Uh, we don't believe that, you know, I found it sometimes amusing that people say, well, that child isn't baptized. How can that child enter into the kingdom? Because unless a man be born again of the water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Please, let's not subject God to rules that we've established in our theology. Um, God, in his love, I think, takes to himself fully a soul of a person who has never voluntarily been affected by sin and therefore sinned against God. So, I mean, these cases we entrust to God. Is it okay to pray for such souls? Why not? D must we pray for such souls or those souls cannot see God? No, I don't believe that. Um, Allison has a question. I don't think that um, the, the answer... Well, let me put it this way. You said that the souls of the damned are in the presence of God, in the unmitigated love of God, mm -hmm. and therefore they are remorseful. Are they remorseful throughout eternity? And I, I don't think it would be orthodox to say that they are able to repent, right. and that would be correct. Would I would this say, remorse? I, don't, I once wrote to a bishop I, with this question. I said, to what extent? I mean, the fathers teach that there can be progress of the soul after death, but to what extent can that progress take place? And what he wrote back is, it's not our duty to ask such questions. His own opinion was, if this soul had so categorically rejected God in life, in the body, you know, he cannot repent fully because he's no longer a person, so to speak. He's a soul in separation from the body, okay? In other words, that person in life rejected God. And that was a categorical rejection of God. Um, and so, is it possible that that person can then be saved? His response was, we can't tell. It's our duty to pray for that person. But in all likelihood, if a person has made a fundamental option against God, that person's conscience is seared in such a way that you know, the total, if you want to talk about in these terms, rehabilitation may not be possible. But, we should pray for people, and if those prayers uh, are efficacious, all the better. If they're not, because that person's rejection of God was thorough and at the base level of that person's conscience and cannot be undone, then that person is condemned himself, and the presence of God is that person's hell. Okay. Question way over here. Can we take a mic over there? How much time do we have left, Don? everyone here knows the answer. I'm an inquirer. <laughs> no questions but, are silly. Okay. Question about baptism. Is there a link between that and salvation? And um, wh what about everyone else that hasn't been baptized Orthodox? Okay. Or baptized at all. At all. Yeah. Uh, certainly there's a link between baptism and salvation because what is salvation? This victory over death. What was the victory over death? Christ's death and resurrection from the dead. What is baptism? A personal grafting into Christ, where you participate. You are grafted into his very victory over death through his death and resurrection. So baptism is central to salvation. What about people who aren't baptized? Are all people who are not baptized condemned to hell because of that? Okay, now, there's a difference of opinion on these things. I'm going to give you my opinion that I think is consonant with this view. This is my opinion. So don't either string me up or, you know, take me out and flog me for this. Those who have not rejected God through any fault of their own 
who have not heard the gospel, or if they have heard it, have had Christianity presented to them in such a distorted way that real Christianity was never presented to them, if you know what I mean. If these people haven't with knowledge really rejected God, but rejected either a distortion of Christianity or have never heard of authentic Christianity at all, that person, like everyone else, will be judged on the basis of the state of their conscience when they are face to face with God. If that person, given the context of their life, the situation in which they developed and dealt with other people, have felt that they were authentically responding to the good in the best way they knew how to, that person's conscience is not going to be assailed with stings and prickles. All right? And so, is it possible for a non-Christian to attain salvation? I would say, probably, if that person's conscience, when it stands before Christ, and they realize that Christ is unmitigated love, do not experience horror at that and want to flee from it, but are filled with a joy because they said, this is to what I was responding, even though I didn't know who he was. Okay? And of course, there are going to be people, when they hear this tape, I'll probably be getting death threats. So... Say a lot of memorial services for me when the time comes. <laughs> but I find it very hard to believe that people who respond to God as authentically as possible without being Christian are damned just because they're not within the bosom of the church. However, I do believe that Christianity is the best way of establishing proper relationship with God, and it's our duty to evangelize as much as possible. That should not make us lazy in proclaiming the truth, but it should make us very reluctant to condemn in very simplistic ways. That's the, that's the mark of a, you know, um, an angry heart, and that's not a good thing. One more, can we take one more? Two more, okay, so here's the next one. Um, yes, Father, um, when you talked about Christ appearing to Thomas with his resurrected body, why did he still have his wounds? Why did he, if you were going to be resurrected and glorified, why do you still, why did he have his wound in his side and his um, head? I really don't know, but my guess is to show that it was really him, you know? Yeah. Oh, no. Oh, no. I hadn't thought of that before. That's horrible. You'd recognize me with a full head of hair, wouldn't you? No, no. Oh, no. First, I have to worry about black bears. And now I have to worry about not getting my hair. I'm not going to forgive you all for this one. <laughs> one more question. Right here. <laughs> yes, good. Father, I don't know whether this is a question or a comment, but I see no difference between a one-week-old unbaptized Hindu and a one-week-old unbaptized Christian. Yeah, neither do I. So I don't think that anybody's going to crucify you for your answer. Okay, good. Thank you. Thank you. Well, again, thank you very much. Think about these things. Um, I apologize profusely if I've uh, presented anything inaccurately. But if I've presented some things that make you think about these issues seriously, but in a confident way as a Christian believer, I'm very happy about that. Take these things and integrate them into your conception of the Christian life. And that will not only make life in this world full for you, but you have fullness of life in the age to come as well. So thank you very much.